POS malware, especially equipped with memory scraping capabilities for the capture of card data, is getting the security industry's attention, namely because these attacks have, by and large, caught a majority of retailers off guard. In some of the most recent waves of backoff attacks, for instance, hackers exploited remote access vulnerabilities to install their malware. And the ways hackers have exploited these access vulnerabilities have put a spotlight on significant poor security practices all too common at all too many retailers. Today I'm joined by Troy Leach, Chief Technology Officer of the PCI Security Standards Council, and Carl Sigler, a Threat Intelligence Manager at cybersecurity firm Trustwave. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So Carl, just to open up here, could you just give us some background about what you're seeing when it comes to backoff, which of course is this most recent malware strain that we've been talking about in the industry? Sure. It's a relatively new uh, malware family. We discovered it in conjunction with an investigation done by the U.S. Secret Service uh, last October. Uh, since that time, we've seen it in four other cases that we've been involved with. And uh, obviously, in, in recent days, there have been a lot more cases that have popped up. Uh, it seems that about a thousand businesses so far have been affected by the POS malware. And it does a lot of the things that we've seen from other POS malware. It's looking at, like you said, memory scraping, key logging in order to capture credit card information uh, in memory on the POS systems themselves. You know, Carl, back at the beginning of the year, shortly after we caught wind of the target breach, we were talking quite a bit about the malware strain known as Black POS. Would you say that there are any connections to Backoff and Black POS, and could Backoff actually have been linked to some of these attacks that we may have blamed on Black POS? Uh, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, they do have a lot of the same functionality. Um, they're doing memory scraping. Uh, they're doing key logging. They're looking for those credit card masks in memory directly. Uh, but so far from what we've seen, Backoff does seem to be a different malware family. A lot of the samples of Black POS showed up previously. That said, there are a lot of similarities, but Backoff seems to be have been written by the criminals involved. Uh, that's why, especially in the initial days, there was no malware detection or antivirus detection of the malware itself. It went pretty much undetected until the uh, what we call the indicators of compromise, the IOCs, were released to the public just recently with the uh, U.S. Secret Service, U.S. CERT joint uh, announcement advisory. And Carl, what were some of those IOCs? Were these some of the remote access vulnerabilities that were highlighted? No, the, the IOCs in this case were specifically talking about the file names themselves. Uh, so Backoff specifically copies itself to the system uh, with an executable name java.w.exe. So if an administrator is just sort of perusing the process list, something called Java W is going to maybe slip underneath their radar for red flags. Um, so things like file names, directory paths, registry keys, uh, even network traffic that would be associated with this specific malware um, gives vendors, security vendors, AV vendors, and even businesses something specifically to look for to say that yes, the malware is installed on the system or not. Those are good points. And Troy, I'm wondering from your perspective, from a PCI perspective, do you see retailers or even other businesses um, that handle card data paying enough attention to these, these types of IOCs that could raise red flags? Well, I think, you know, remote access in general has been a challenge, a continuous challenge for many years now. And you can see it in several iterations of the standards that we've published. Remote desktops um, offer convenience and efficiency, uh, but they have to be secured 
effectively. And that's one of the challenges. It's one of those things that says easy, does hard. So we often see that this remote access technology becomes the back door for this malware to critical resources and cardholder data. And what we're trying to do through our standards is minimize uh, the risk to the networks by uh, a variety of different paths so that you have a multi-layered approach so that malware itself cannot be installed in the point-of-sale environment. One of the things that has got a lot of attention is, you know, we're, we're seeing malware now in volatile memory, which is very hard to detect and, and, and prevent against. However, there's so many other controls that have to be in place that could prevent uh, that malware from ever reaching uh, such a sensitive area. And Troy, what would you say is most often to blame for these exploits? Is it the fact that usernames and passwords are just too weak, or is it that the hackers are able to socially engineer some of these passwords and usernames from unsuspecting victims, or is it a combination of things? I think it's it's a combination of things, and we've seen similar attacks in uh, different uh, regions of the world. I think for us, uh, you know, I was looking at the Department of Homeland Security came out with uh, recommendations for how you prevent back off um, and, and similar malware in the point and sale environment. And all of those recommendations fall within the existing data security standards. So uh, configuring the lockout settings for remote access, uh, having appropriate firewalls so you're monitoring the ingress and egress of, of traffic, uh, limiting the access and the need to, to remotely um, enter those environments, have two-factor authentication, as you mentioned, Tracy, complex passwords, all those types of things, having encrypted tunnels, are, are things that can help to minimize the risk and exposure for retailers. What would you say are some of the leading PCI concerns for retailers right now, Troy? Well, I, I think one of the leading areas is the dependency on third parties. It's just um, inherent in, in business today that uh, there are dependencies on third parties to provide software as a service or other specialties. And what we're seeing is that, in fact, in the TrustWave report published last year, a majority of the compromises that are happening are related to the third parties that are actually the, the source of the breach. And so this last week, we published a new best practices from our community on how do you protect yourself and, and how do you have a good third-party relationship with those that you really depend on for some of your security protections. Carl, maybe you could speak to some of these third-party risks um, as well, or maybe even some of what Troy mentioned about poor usernames and, and passwords. Pretty much everything that Troy said is spot on. In that uh, report that he mentioned we released last year, we found that one of the primary avenues of compromise, one of the main methods that criminals are using to gain access to an organization is simply password leakage, either poor passwords or passwords getting leaked in some fashion. Uh, so authentication is just a must. And with systems that are as critical as POS systems, two-factor authentication uh, sh should be almost a given for most situations for critical systems like that. With two-factor authentication in place, with uh, strong firewall rules, with you know security experts that are monitoring inbound and outbound traffic from the systems, this would have stopped back off in a lot of points. Um, if one layer had failed, another layer would have picked it up. So a lot of it is just security best practice. Um, you know, there's, there's not really anything magical about this. There are a lot of just very basic security practices that could be implemented that could prevent this in most situations. 
I'd like to go back to talk just a bit about third-party risks, and the main reason is because it's not just from the retail side of the house that we've been hearing about these third-party risks. We've also been hearing quite a bit from banking regulators about the risks that third parties pose to banking institutions and their systems. Troy, from a PCI security standards perspective, what is the council doing to help clarify for retailers and for banking institutions, for that matter, the obligations that they have really to ensure that these third parties they work with are PCI compliant? I mean, is that finally starting to sink in? I, I think there's a greater awareness today than there was uh, eight, nine months ago. I think if we look at the DSS version 3.0 published last November, it had a focus on service providers because not just in 2014, but if we go back two, three years, we see a, a series of breaches where there was a dependency on a third party that resulted in, in the breach. So in the standard itself, we've looked at uh, making sure that service providers have specific controls, unique passwords for each of their customers, um, that there are written agreements in place, and we have new requirements that hold the service provider accountable to say um, there needs to be in writing some language that says as a service provider takes your customer's cardholder data that they are going to protect it to the same vigilance that is expected of a merchant. And Carl, I know that you're not a, a PCI security standards expert. Of course, you're focused more on the investigations and the malware itself. But do you believe that the PCI security standards, as they're written today, are doing enough to ensure that retailers are adequately addressing their malware risks? Oh, I think it's doing a lot. Um, you know, prior to having PCI requirements, you know, there, there was no one saying who was accountable. And there are a lot, there's a lot of finger pointing that goes on in security in general. So as a baseline, as, as some place to at least start, for, from a foundational perspective, PCI is extremely important to the industry. Uh, and the fact that they're adding new rules with 3.0 for third parties uh, and sort of fleshing that out too. A lot of times we generally thought of third party as, as just being the people that handled offsite backups, um, third party database providers, things like that. And uh, hardware manufacturers, people that are providing equipment like the, the POS terminals kind of fell through the cracks until we realized that, you know, they are a third party that are actually handling the same data as well. Uh, so expanding and constantly expanding those uh, requirements um, it's, it's been a really wonderful living document, and I think it's helped the industry tremendously. And, and one thing to add to what Carl just said, Tracy, is we are continuing to evaluate that third party, and, and uh, as a living document, as he says, and this year we'll be speaking at our community meetings about potential new requirements for service providers and third parties specifically, and, and what, if anything, may uh, be beyond the version 3.0 of the DSS standard. That's a good point, Troy. Thank you. Because I think the definition of what constitutes a third party is constantly evolving and changing, as we've learned with the target breach. What, from the cardholder data security perspective, what more could banking institutions be doing to help mitigate some of the risks that are posed by these malware attacks that are targeting retailers, if anything? That's a great question. I, I think at the council, we have a, a three-phased approach to security of, in general of payment card data. And, and the first is find ways to remove that cardholder data. Our, our very first slogan at the council was, if you don't need it, don't store it. And I think there's an opportunity for us to partner with the acquiring community to educate uh, merchants that may have an archaic business practice where they're still retaining uh, information for legacy process and they really no longer need to store that cardholder data for transactions. So I think, I think there's an opportunity to minimize what that attack surface is. Uh, secondly, I, I 
we've always said, well, then you secure that data from uh, using the DSS standard. Uh, and the third prong is to devalue that information and, and find ways to eliminate it through point-to-point uh, -point encryption, tokenization, through uh, dynamic data, and other ways so that we are at a state in the banking industry where we no longer rely on static data for transactions, but there's always uh, dynamic authentication or other dynamic values that are part of that transaction, and that's going to help the entire ecosystem from the issuer to the merchant to the networks to the acquirer, uh, and, and that's the, the state we need to get to. Carl, I'd like to ask you a bit about what Troy said here and the fact that if you don't need it, don't store it. But given that most of these point-of-sale systems and networks are Windows-based, how likely is it that you can really eliminate all data from being stored on a network or system? Uh, it can be minimized, absolutely. I mean, just, just encryption from the, the scanner to the system itself, uh, you know, if it's encrypted end-to-end, -end, we're not going to really even see it uh, in these systems. And a lot of these scanners, uh, card swipers, or, you know, readers uh, do have that capacity. They, they can actually encrypt the data before it even enters the system. And that's an amazing security control. It would definitely protect the data. Um, if somebody's doing memory scraping, they're just going to see encrypted garbage in memory that's going to be useless to them. So a lot of these controls go a very long way, regardless of what operating system is running underneath these terminals. Troy, that's a nice segue for you because one of the things that you and I have talked about quite a bit in the past, and I think uh, most recently we spoke about this at the RSA conference in February, we've heard so much about EMV, but EMV is not going to solve all of the problems, and you've talked quite a bit about the need for end-to-end -end encryption um, as well as tokenization, which you touched on earlier. Can you explain why EMV would not have prevented some of these recent card breaches that we've seen? Yeah, I think there's a couple of clarifying points from what we've seen in the media because we hear about POS malware. And I think when, when people hear that, they automatically are drawn to, oh, it's, it's the payment terminal that I swipe my, my card into. Uh, the reality is this malware is not actually being installed inside those terminals, but actually part of the uh, broader point-of-sale system, the electronic cash register, the ECR, and as you mentioned, the Windows-based and other commercially-based operating systems. And those are much more merchant-managed and, and opportunity to secure that differently than you would a, a terminal. So as we look at EMV and, and look at the migration here in the U.S., I've heard people be apprehensive to say, well, maybe we shouldn't migrate to EMV if this point-of-sale malware is out there. And the reality is the terminals themselves, the point-of-sale, point-of-interaction terminals, actually are secure, and they would prevent this type of malware for many different reasons. And even if this malware to be installed, uh, those systems have to restart themselves back to their natural state in every 24 hours. So, so there's opportunity uh, to prevent that type of malware in the terminal itself. But to the question, there's also in uh, EMV terminals, you still use the same information that you do in Magstripe to process transactions. And so that information can still be used in cross-channel fraud. If it were stolen by malware or by just any type of criminal activity, it could be used in e-commerce, it could be used in mail order, telephone order, and all these other channels. So what we need to do is as we migrate um, as an industry to EMV terminals here in the United States, we need to consider future-proofing these terminals with encryption, tokenization, so that that information is not exposed to criminal activity, and it's a one-time investment rather than trying to add that security on at a future date. 
And Carl, do you have any thoughts to add there? I mean, the retailers that you're working with, do you think they really understand what this means end-to-end encryption? Uh, generally not. I mean, encryption itself is uh, sort of a mysterious black box. And we talk about end-to-end, um, even amongst security vendors, they can have differing ideas, which sort of muddles the conversation entirely, which is why education is very important as well. Educating not just the consumers, but the uh, businesses that are consuming these third-party services, these POS systems, to understand exactly what they're getting and what security protections they're getting there are are very important. Um, And with EMV, um, just back to that, the, the transition to EMV and how we move to it is also going to be very important for what protections we, we inherit from that technology. You know, already we've seen uh, implementations of EMV where they've done away with the PIN, and it's ra- rather than chip and PIN, it's chip and signature. Um, a lot of them are still being just swiped with magnetic stripes because uh, not every single business has an EMV reader, so they're falling back to the older technology, which of course it's going to support for legacy purposes. So um, a lot of businesses just aren't that educated on what security controls are necessary and what security controls they have implemented. Uh, So education is going to be a huge part of this moving forward. Again, we've just heard from Troy Leach of the PCI Security Standards Council and Carl Sigler, Threat Intelligence Manager of threat intelligence firm TrustWave. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.